I really enjoyed being at the men's retreat for the second, uh, second time. Last year I went as well and had a great time. We had a wonderful time with the men who are, I think are about six years or so are still there and I think Tyson said they may be sharing testimonies and things like that this morning. And uh, next Sunday I've been asked to come as well and speak uh, as I encourage Scott to go on sabbatical. Um, I didn't realize uh, a little bit ago, a couple of weeks ago, I sent him a text as I do to pastors, a uh, number of Timothys in my life and pastors and so forth that I've influenced. I send them a text that I'm praying for them, which I really do. And I, I send one to Scott saying, I'm praying for you that God would mightily use you this morning as you deliver God's mail. And uh, he's texted back a picture of his feet on a lounge chair looking, <laughs> overlooking the beach. And he said, I'm not preaching today, but thank you very much. A survey was taken of leaders at a Christian seminar by a speaker and author on leadership, and his question was, what words best describe a leader? And I wondered what they would say. They had nouns like hero, sage, seer, hearer, mouthpiece, fundraiser, coach, catalyst, optimist, truth-teller, surgeon, consultant, shepherd, visionary, parent, friend, etc. And these nouns uh, were also used to describe the themselves when they were asked the question, what is the single best word to describe you as a leader? I wonder what you would say. And although each of these descriptors is accurate and good, not one leader offered the word closely paralleling the chapter I'd like to speak from, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, namely weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected or made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, we pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit, that you would pour out water on the thirsty land, that you would pour out your Spirit on everyone here and upon their offspring, and that you would raise up another generation like willows by flowing streams, that people will come to faith around our neighborhoods and around this area and from the children on up, and they would write on their hand the Lord's, that they would call on your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wanted to go beyond your limitations? Wouldn't it be nice if you weren't ordinary? Jesus of Nazareth lived in Nazareth. He was from Nazareth. In fact, that's how he was known, his identity, all the way to the cross over his head. It said Jesus of Nazareth. Not the best town you'd want to be from. One of the temptations of Satan in Luke chapter 4 was for Jesus to do something spectacular. Jump off the temple in front of everyone. You know the psalm that says the angels will catch you in the last second and everyone will go, wow, you are spectacular. And Jesus refused that and kept being in his ordinary body, not someone you would recognize, not someone you would expect to be the Messiah, promised to come and he went into his hometown of Nazareth and preached, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. When I was given the name Smart, I didn't uh, know how to talk or think or anything. I was just a, a baby, and um, my parents gave me their last name, Smart. All my life I was teased. Now there's smartphones and so forth, but I always hated my name. If I had another name, I would be happier. Now, my wife, I thought no one would marry me, and my wife, uh, people ask her, what's your, what's your maiden name? And she says, oh, it's gross. And they said, that's okay, tell us anyway. She said, no, it's gross. <laughs> and she was so happy to take my name, I was just thrilled with that. <laughs> but then the Lord called me to normal Illinois. I don't think that's funny. You're laughing. I don't think that's funny. Smart from normal. I tried to leave. I've been a Jonah all 25 years. And every Monday, a whale throws me up again on the beach. And I come into that place stinking and I can't get, away. I can't get out of the limitations God has put in my life. Some of you think, oh, if I was just beautiful, wouldn't that be great? If I was just really beautiful. You know, one of the saddest things two days ago in the news was a Playboy bunny jumped off a high rise with her son to her death. Do you think you can handle glory? Do you think you could handle beauty and strength and intellect and favor with God? 
It's one of the hardest things to steward is glory, but also just being ordinary. A lot of us have a hard time living within the limitations God put in our lives. We try to be omnipresent on the internet, omniscient, and all these things. And God is looking for us to just simply admit we're ordinary. That we live within limitations. We've had handicaps. We have stories with wounds that are meant to be chapters in an ongoing story of redemption that is leading to a glorious and happy ending. The Apostle Paul knows that the Corinthians have been bewitched by this super, superman Christianity. This thinking that usefulness and service to Christ requires supernatural revelations and visions and tremendous strengths and beauty and wealth and health. And so he challenge them, challenges us this morning with a simple question. God challenge us, challenges us this morning with a simple question. Have you ever considered the possibility that your limitations and your handicaps and your wounds and your broken story may prove to be the key ingredients to your usefulness and service to Christ. Let me say it again, maybe another way or two. Have you ever considered the possibility that the limitations and the weaknesses and the wounds and the inadequacies in your life are the key ingredients for God mightily using you in service to Christ. I'd like to draw three things from this passage. The first is let the sacred stay private. In verses 1 through 5, he uses a third person, but it's really Paul's experience. And there are there's such sacred experiences in encountering God that true Christians have that are so sacred that we would never want to profane them by telling everybody about them in order to exalt ourselves. Usefulness and service to God doesn't require that you have this supernatural experience you need to share with everybody. That isn't that's not the platform that Paul's going to use, even though he had those, even though true Christians have those. You live amongst a million Mormons, and they're regularly validating their self in this super, superman religion, Mormonism, and they're using that as a platform to draw people in. Notice what Paul says. This is the first time he's ever shared this experience. This was the biggest, this was the big one for him. And he says, 14 years ago, I had it. This is the first time he's even sharing it with anyone. And he puts it in the third person, I know a man. And in verse 6 he says, but I refrain. Why? Because whether in conduct or speech, all I want anyone to see 
is who I really am and what I really say. I want you to see me as ordinary. People who profane what is sacred to exalt themselves to be super Christians are always suspect. That's what he's saying. Watch out. The reason is, is they claim God's authority for themselves on the basis they make it the platform for why God's authority is all over them. Rather, with true Christians, Paul included, we find that there are sacred encounters with God, but because they are so precious, two things always characterize these true Christians. One is holy shyness about themselves, and secondly, holy boldness about Christ. They both go together. Would you go around and tell everybody in public about your sacred sexual intimacy with your spouse? Hebrews 13 says, keep the marriage beds holy and sacred. Keep it there. <laughs> don't bring it to work. Please don't go into detail. It's like your kids, you know. We told our kids that when we were first married, I think Karen's three months older than me, and so she always sings the Sound of Music song to me. You need someone older and wiser telling you what to do. And I always, you know, it ticks me off because I'm, I can't get over that limitation either. I'm younger than my wife. Man's supposed to be older in my, my little mind. And we were telling the kids that my wife has a, a, a witty sense of humor. And I came home on my birthday at 24 years old. We'd just been married a few months and she had this seminar. Now you're 24 years old and I need to train you on how to be 24. And she had a lot of fun. <laughs> anyway, uh, we had this joke about Tokyo Joe and they totally misinterpret it to be sexual intimacy. And it's one of those things where the kids just say, please, don't bring that, don't tell me. <laughs> Paul is claiming that such a sacred experience of going to the third heaven, cosmology in those days, what he means by third heaven is that they believe that first heaven was the sky, the second heaven was the stars, and the third heaven was paradise. And Paul's saying such a sacred experience in the paradise to be brought up, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was not only for super-Christians and apostles, but for everyone. For he says, I know a man in Christ. I know a woman in Christ. It is common for ordinary Christians to have sacred experiences and encounters with God. But we ought to not use those as a platform for service to God. For example, Martin Lloyd-Jones never told about the time where he had a tremendous encounter with God. He was really in the dumps. He had got a private room. He was a famous preacher in the last century. 
and he was really blue. He felt evil in the room. He was getting up in the morning, and he looked down at the word glory on the, on the cover of a book he was reading, and immediately he felt, he sensed it was like a flash of light blazing in the room. He felt the love of God shed abroad in his heart. All his doubt and fear was silence, and the nearness of heaven felt like his, he had a title to it. He had overwhelming certainties, and at last, this joy and this sense of ecstasy lasted several days. He would never have told about it, but Ian Murray wrote it in his biography. Or D.L. Moody, who after the Chicago fire, the famous evangelist from Chicago was in New York City raising money. And he said, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. So sacred experiences like this are common to true Christians, but they're not something, they're, they're, they're experiences we seldom refer to or we don't, we have a shyness about ourselves. So what is such a, an awesome experience anyway without love? You're, you'd be just a noisy nuisance, like a, like a symbol. Like staying with Emily and Tyson this week, I don't know who did it, I don't know who bought it, but I would never do this to, to parents. They, they bought, I think, little Isaiah a drum set. And, and every once in a while it just falls over and clashes. And they put it back up and sometimes Isaiah, little Isaiah gets on it and just beats away, you know, and the other kids say, oh, mom, dad, please, can you ask Isaiah, Zay to please stop playing? So what is this great experience without love? You're nothing. Without love, you've gained nothing. So let the... Paul is modeling for us the chief leader in the New Testament, New Covenant here in the Scriptures. Let your sacred stay private, these experiences. In measuring, don't use it to measure your usefulness to Christ. And secondly, he says, let your handicaps go public. He begins verse 7, so, to keep me from being conceited. So, keep me from getting a fat head, literally in Greek, it's to keep me from being a fat head. You know, like if you took those old billows, you know, you'd try and start a fire, get, it, get the fire going. If you pumped up someone's head, that's the idea in Greek, is you just get a big fat head. You know all this. Knowledge puffs up. So to keep me from becoming a fat head, I was given a thorn. Spiritual power is forever connected to weakness. Ever since Jesus came, God came and God took on the form of a servant, became a man with limitations. 
from Nazareth, in weakness went to the cross. When we go to heaven in Revelation, it says there's two words that describe what will be the central focus of heaven. The first is thronos or throne, which is all about power and strength. And the second is the lamb that was slain, which is all about weakness and love and tenderness. It's, it's reality. We can't get out of our limitations and our inadequacies and our weaknesses. So in verses 8 and 9, when he tries to plead, he pleads three times, probably long seasons of fasting, three times, God, please remove this from me. He basically comes to the conclusion that if God hadn't given me this thorn, then I would never have known my desperate inadequacy and my need for grace. In other words, if dependency on God is the aim, then weakness is your advantage. The thorn, verse 7, thank God it's unknown what the thorn was. If the thorn is in the flesh, is, is the body itself, then it's a physical handicap. If, if the thorn meant it's in the flesh, it's in the sinful nature, then it's a besetting sin. If the thorn is in the flesh, flesh a messenger of Satan, then it's one of Satan's errand boys, harassing and always battling Paul all the time. And all of us have all three. You might have a physical handicap, you might have a besetting sin, you might have this constant, humming, annoying voice of condemnation. And the important thing here is the process, that as he prays that God would remove and heal, he eventually sees that God has a purpose for this, that God is keeping me from becoming conceited. And he's given me a message along with it. For he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is going to use this thorn as sort of like a funnel for which he, I can receive all this grace. For grace is poured out on the weak, not the strong. And one of the worst kinds of pride that God opposes is spiritual pride. Do you have a sacred experience where you've encountered God and it was awesome? If so, maybe you've been given a thorn. And the moment you receive that thorn in your flesh, you, you went to your knees and begged God to remove it. But I ask you, have you considered the possibility that that thorn is the key ingredient of being mightily used by God in service to Christ. Now, gender curses in Genesis 3 were meant for good. How is God good in cursing masculinity? Men were built to work with the dirt, to cultivate, to be great, to 
move into the womb of this world, to plant seed, to multiply their life, to cultivate gardens, to, to, to change culture. It's the way we're built. It's the way we, we are. It's the way it is. We are strong but tender to penetrate and make a big impact. But the curse is, though men love the dirt and all that, notice the curse is directed at his glory. His relationship with the dirt and all his work, that everything he does is going to be fraught with thistles and thorns. Why is that? How is God good in cursing masculinity at the very relation to its, to its glory? So that a man would come to the point of admitting he's inadequate, he's weak, and he must, he's licked, and he must cry out for another man, namely Jesus Christ. For when we are weak, then we are strong in Jesus Christ. Or how about the feminine curse? How is God good in cursing femininity in the very way it's glorious? For women were built from the man, out of the rib. Men, women are glorious because they're relational. Men are clueless about relationships, basically. Usually, generally speaking. Women were meant to nurture relationships and be intimate. They give birth to relationships. They, they open up the womb of their heart and wrap themselves around and adjust to strong leadership. Yet the curse comes directly at the woman that she would have pain in giving birth to relationship. She would have pain in childbirth. And that the curse would be that she will always be crouched to control all her primary relationships, her husband and so forth. How is God good in the feminine curse? The curse was meant to bring every woman to her knees to embrace the sorrow that in all her relationships she aches and longs for intimacy for somebody else. She was built for somebody more, namely Jesus Christ. And when she admits that she's licked, that she can't control people, that she can't get back to Eden, that she can't experience that intimacy anymore, then she will cry out for another husband, namely Jesus Christ who with strength will come in your weakness so that he may have the glory and you may be useful in your service to Christ. So here's the crucial application regarding the thorn. The thorn is, is, has two messages. The first message is, the thorn is a gift from God. It was given to me, Paul says. The second, it's a messenger from Satan. In other words, your thorn has two messages attached to it. The first is Christ's message that grace, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. I'm going to use you mightily. Trust me in this. I know what I'm doing. The other message is Satan's message. He says, a messenger was sent from Satan. And what is Satan's message? Satan's message is, you aren't beautiful enough. You aren't strong enough. You aren't smart enough. 
You are stupid. You don't have value and worth. You are condemned. You will never make it. There is no hope. Surrender to the lie. And so every thorn has two messages. And the question is, which message attached to the thorn are you going to listen to and let rule your life? So let the sacred experience stay private. Secondly, let your handicaps go public. And third, let his power be made perfect in your weakness. Notice Paul's restraining all the way through the passage about his sacred experience, which was incredible. And now he's bold. Now he talks about his weaknesses. Now he has a, a holy boldness. He, he's telling everybody all about how weak he is. You could just picture Paul at the typical American celebrity evangelical pastor's conference. Excuse me, Paul, we, 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 we thought we usually have a Q&A and, and we've got a questioner that, that wrote this that it could be mistaken, but he thought he heard you say that it, it, it's your weakness that is the key ingredient to, to powerful service for Christ. And, and he was just wondering, maybe he didn't understand that, maybe you could rephrase it. And he was wondering if you've ever taken strength finders and he was wondering if you could just list your five strengths because we want to know what's the key to your victory and power and success and service to Christ. That's why we came to this conference. Well, Paul probably would say, well, now that's a very interesting question. I, I have a, an answer for that in verse 10. Let's see, my, my top five uh, uh, that I would write down. Number one, weaknesses. Number two, insults. Definitely insults. I, I would want to make sure. I'd say that's number two. And number three is hardships. Got to have hardships for effective service in Christ. And number four is persecutions. And frankly, number five, let's just call it calamities. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying, he would say to them. It's actually the inverse, the paradox of the whole thing of Christianity, because he says in verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, culturally, this is, this is what we need. This is where we live. We are like Corinth. Let me give you an example. Let me say a, a quote of somebody from the Wall Street Journal, Peggy Newman. She says, an entire generation has been raised with no proper sense of inadequacy. Maybe you don't believe that. You know, humanism has, has ruled so long in the U.S. The humanism is, is kind of like uh, the guy that did our wedding, a friend who's from Scotland. And he came to the United States and he married an American girl. He went to her high school football game, hadn't really seen football, football was soccer. He's watching a football game, American football game. Their team is losing big time. They're not going to win. And the cheerleaders are over there saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. And he leaned over to his fiance and said, we ain't going to do it. 
And that's what humanism is. It's a valedictorian speech where the, the, lady, the girl, the boy stands up and says, you're the best class ever. You're going to change the world. You're amazing. We can do it. We can. We can. It's what Francis Schaeffer says, hum, the humanist has both feet firmly planted in midair. We can't do it. But yet, this is a recent survey. One million high schoolers surveyed, 70% rated themselves above average. Only 2% of one million rated themselves below average. 0% rated themselves below average in getting along with people. 60% thought themselves in the top 10% in their quality of relationships. And the, then they graduate and they go to college, and here's the college faculty surveyed. 90% of professors in college, universities, and the like rated themselves above average and felt they were entitled to merit pay. So this isn't, this is, this kind of, the apostles and Jesus Christ would look at a lot of American Christianity, and, and this is what the, he, Paul's saying in Corinth, this is actually the inverse of true Christianity. Being a Christian useful in God's service is somebody who embraces their limitations, their weaknesses, their insults, the persecutions, the whatever, the limitations, and just to be ordinary. All I want you to see is who I really look like and who, what I'm really saying. The old hymn put it this way, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to, to his blood. And so let raptures of being caught up into paradise and thorns of being pinned down to your knees be your teachers. Don't trust the applause and don't fear the insults. Don't trust the applause. Applause is like perfume. It smells great. Just smell it, but don't drink it. Thank you. That smelled fine. But if you drink it, it's like, oh man, this stuff is terrible. It rot your soul and your tummy out. So let your sacred experiences stay private. Let your handicaps go public. Let his power be made perfect. So there's three choices in this passage. Are you going to use your experiences as profane to exalt yourself, or are they going to be sacred? And concerning the thorn's message, there's two messages to your thorn. Are you going to believe what Christ says, that he knows what he's doing, that power, his grace is sufficient in your weakness, that power is made perfect in weakness? Are you going to believe Satan's lie? There is no hope. If you were only different, if you only lived somewhere else, if you only had more intellect or whatever or whatever, then you would have hope. 
and concerning power perfected, are you going to try in your own power or are you going to look for Christ's power? And Paul speaks one last time to Christ to validate true Christian service. And he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So you've heard of John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. God saved him in an extraordinary way. I think you sing some of his other hymns put to contemporary music. And this is a hymn that I haven't heard sung much or anything, but he struggled, John Newton. He he struggled because he wasn't really a good preacher. Um, He was mightily used of God because he grasped the gospel and learned to live as an ordinary Christian. Sometimes he would, he would kind of just go here and there in his sermon and every once in a while I'd land on Christ and this old Scottish elder in the back would say, hold ye there, you minister, you're right there. Because when he spoke of Christ, it was, it was just that's where the spirit came. And he, he wrote this, he said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more his salvation know, might more earnestly seek his face. Isn't that a wonderful prayer request? T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my requests and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, or yea, yea more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all my fine strategies and I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Then he asked, Lord, why is this I trembling cry? Will you pursue your worm to death? Here's the answer. Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your strategies of earthly joy that you would find your all in me. Father, we pray that you would take this and use it to promote gospel transformation in our lives. We pray that for some that you would lay it on their heart to let Let your word, this passage, linger longer. They wouldn't just go through the motions today, that this would be the day they really come to terms with their limitations and handicaps and begin to agree with you that it's the key ingredient to usefulness with you. We pray that they would break agreements with the devil that they would not come into agreement with the devil about why they're not enough or why they feel so lonely and achy, why they're not prettier, smarter, stronger, or more wealthy. 
they would not come in agreement, but they would renounce his lies and get feisty and embrace being ordinary. And we pray you would use them mightily in your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.